episode 464 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, family, not even our pets, sadly. We've got a great group of folks for our roundup. For the first time ever, she hasn't said she's a longtime listener, but she is a first-time caller, Francesca Chessy Lockhart, who leads the Applied Cybersecurity Community Clinic at the University of Texas, Austin. Chessy, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And I have to say, we've also had from UT Austin, Chinny has been on and Bobby has been on. My theory is that Bobby Chesney, having experienced the pain of being an adult with a child's nickname, has opened his door and provided a kind of refuge for other people who are also suffering from E-syndrome. My question is, has this actually been remarked upon at UT Austin? It has. It's like nickname city over here for whatever reason. But, you know, we tend to look at it as the rhyming is fun and whimsical, makes us seem more approachable than if we used our formal legal names. So that's the route we've we've decided to take out of All necessity. Right. Well, that makes that makes sense. You just just tell Bobby that growing up Stewie was a fighting word. <laughs> Okay, and Michael Ellis, formerly with the House Intelligence Committee and NSC, now a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Michael, great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Stuart, and I'm definitely not a Mikey. Yeah, yep. And finally, Jordan Schneider, who has confessed already in the pre-show warm-up that he has been known occasionally as Jordy. And he is the host of the really excellent China Talk podcast, which is going from strength to strength. Definitely worth a subscription. Jordan, welcome. And do you want to tell us your Jordy story? So no one called me this except for my wife. When she went to business school, she introduced me to her new friends as Jordy. After not having been called this for maybe 25 years, I had to retrain a bunch of 30-year-olds to uh, go back to Jordan. I think I've successfully debugged that, and we're still now up to like, you know, 99% compliance, which is great. So I'm not going to tell you my youthful nickname because it's mercifully disappeared. I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Well, as so often is the case, the biggest, most interesting stories are AI and especially Majority Leader Schumer's announcement that he's got an ambitious set of bipartisan regulatory legislative initiatives that he wants to push, not in weeks, not in years, but in months. Jordan, what's he trying to do and and what are the prospects? Yeah, so I got to say, you know, we spent a lot of time on this show bragging on politicians for this and that, but I came away really impressed by this announcement for, you know, one fundamental reason. Basically, you have uh, over the past few months seen a lot of people who seem to be really scared of innovation and sort of don't understand that the potential upsides that may be coming down the pipeline with AI have the potential to expand like human horizons and flourishing just as much as the Industrial Revolution did. So for Senator Schumer to sort of take all of the, you know, not unfounded anxieties and worries about what AI can bring and then go to see. SIS and say, look, innovation 
is the lodestar. And this is what we should be orienting our policy around to allow the sorts of fantastic transformation that you know technology has delivered to societies in the past and help to guide that in a way that will allow AI to do the same for people in the US around the world was really encouraging to me. Now, you know, he put this in a framework of safe innovation, highlighting a number of different areas where the government potentially needs to play a role in order to make human societies, uh, you know, companies, international relations comfortable to allow this development to spread. But I really was encouraged that someone with this much potential influence on the future of AI trajectory wasn't, you know, comfortable in just kind of going into a shell and doing the, you know, we need to take a pause, let's shut all this down, but rather taking a more forward-looking optimistic approach to trying to sort of enable this technology to be all it can be. Yeah, I take your point on that. And he went out of his way to say he wanted it to be bipartisan. I don't think he really had a choice. I'll ask Michael, but you know, he only controls one of two houses. And so if Republicans are not on board, this goes nowhere. And he doesn't have that many votes in the Senate. So I, I'm guessing that he has to stress innovation. He has to look for a common denominator, which will, you know, sand some some of the crazier edges off of regulatory proposals. Michael, do you think that Senator Schumer has the ability to get a bipartisan consensus on some of these issues? Well, we'll see. I admire Jordan's optimism, at least. I chalk this up as politicians doing what politicians are going to do, which is there's a buzzy new area out there where people are, you know, talking about it in Silicon Valley, people are talking about it in Brussels, right? The Europeans are keen to regulate, and Schumer doesn't want to be left out of the game. He wants to be at the center of the action. What's the old saying that one of the most dangerous places in Washington to be was between Chuck Schumer and a camera? Especially so, on a Sunday. I, I, he, was, he was notorious for doing Sunday press conferences because nobody else was making news. Yeah. So, you know, data privacy legislation has been in the works for years. They haven't actually gotten anything processed out of the Senate. And I trust legislation, you know, momentum was building in the Senate last year. Schumer didn't bring it up for a vote. FISA 702 reauthorization, they've gotten their plate. Those are all hard things, right? Where the, the battle lines are drawn and it's going to take political willpower to get them over the finish line. So does Schumer go, you know, dive into any of those hard topics and bring them to the floor? No, he wants to go to the new thing where... You know, maybe maybe the fact that there aren't partisan battle lines makes it a little easier for him to produce some legislation. But I'm skeptical, at least until someone does a better job outlining what exactly it is the gap that we need legislation to fill. Yeah. And if you're looking for something that will appeal to Republicans saying my priorities are dealing with AI misinformation, which, you know, Republicans read as how can we squelch conservative speech? bias, which conservatives read as how can we build quotas into new areas of the law, copyright holders, which is paying off all of the Hollywood and other big content providers with new sources of rent income, and protecting intellectual property, which is pretty much the same thing. So he's touching on issues that are more interesting to Democratic constituents than to Republicans. Yeah, and the other, I think, and the other thing in the backdrop here, to go back to antitrust legislation, is he's taking heat from a lot of folks on the left, like Amy Klobuchar, for not bringing antitrust legislation to the floor last fall when he had the chance, and you know they they allege doing so at the behest of Google and Meta and Amazon, all of whom you know vehemently oppose that legislation. I think this could be Schumer's way to say, look, I am doing something on tech policy. It's just not going to be you know, what those, uh, 
more aggressive antitrust regulated folks want to do. Tough so crowd. I every- <laughs> Dear God. I mean, look, I, Stuart, I really did not read the uh, sort of aggressive sort of dem valence in what he's talking about. I think a lot of these questions actually are sort of bipartisan and probably, you know, should be going forward. He sort of identified four up top. The balance between collaboration and competition among entities developing AI. How much federal innovation on the tax and spending side should there be? Should we let the private sector develop on its own? You know, what's the proper balance between private AI systems and open AI systems? And how do we ensure innovation and competition is open to everyone, not just a few big, powerful companies? And like, You're right. That, sure. that, does, that does not sound <laughs> particularly GOP or dem folk. Yeah. And, and I think these are like what I think he was honest about was that the answers are not obvious and they almost certainly will not have like a clear left right bias where, you know, the answer is going to be like anti-competition everything or just like let the private sector do what it does. I mean, I, I think there is there is an exploratory process which is going on in the executive branch and the legislative branch and the broader public discourse, which is really healthy and sort of coming back to that exploratory process. I did want to ask you guys a process question because, you know, he pointed to this setting up AI insight forums and kind of bagging on the whole idea that the current sort of committee system of he was making fun of, you know, five minute introductory speeches as that being like the pathway for Congress to move on something that this sort of technologically sophisticated where they don't have, you know, like case law or what have you to uh, to explore prior things. I'm curious what you what you all three think was really going on there with him sort of proposing this like parallel learning exploration process for for the Senate to be working on. I, I think it works great if you're the leader because it it undermines the committee system and pulls things into something that it is more likely to revolve around you than around the personalities that are chairing the, uh, the committees. You can yeah, and, and there's, a, there's, there's a big jurisdictional fight coming here, right? Uh, there's going to be six committees that want a piece of this. And it's a lot easier to say, we're going to have a new structure with these forums and gather information in different ways than to you know open up immediately the fight of like, this is, this is the way Congress works, right? The first fight will be, who gets to regulate on the issue, right? Which committee's jurisdiction is it? So it lets him sidestep that. Hopefully that, you know, that's successful and he can have a jurisdictional truce between committees. But I, I suspect that's what's behind it. Yeah, that's easier to pull off in the Senate where the jurisdictional lines are a little more blurred. In the House, you'd never get away with that, is my guess. Every senator wants to have jurisdiction over everything is the uh, exactly. <laughs> rule of thumb. So, Chessie, I'll let you weigh in on this, but I, I thought I'd also ask you about what seems to be an article we read every week, which is kind of poo-pooing the people who believe there's an existential risk that we need to worry about in the context of AI. And the article touches on the usual responses, which is, oh, it's just a ghost story. It's a movie plot. It's not real. And really, people are talking about this so that we don't talk about other regulatory concerns that are much more immediate. Sure. No, I think this is a good segue from the previous conversation, which highlighted some of those avoidance issues quite nicely. I tend to side more with the optimistic side. Jordan, you have an ally here. I'm not, I don't necessarily buy into the AI boogeyman, you know, narrative necessarily, because as this article pointed out, it's hypothetical at this point. I will say, I will caveat that with my background prior to coming to UT was in counterterrorism and critical infrastructure protection for the state of Texas. 
I do think the article made a great point that the most you know, risk here is from that critical infrastructure perspective, where if, you know, not necessarily these hypothetical super intelligent machines, but just simple, I think they called it dumb machines, are given too much leeway or are manipulated by an insider threat while in use at a critical infrastructure facility, that could unintentionally or intentionally cause, you know, a failure of catastrophic proportions. And that is something we're worried about in Texas already with this heat wave straining the grid. It is a little scary to think about the not too far off reality of AI affecting, you know, what already may be a struggling critical infrastructure framework here in the state. So that's just my two cents on what I do see as the risk there, the existential one that is. Okay. I may be unusual on this podcast. I think it's a plausible, not a hypothetical risk because... There is a point where the machines will be able to design the next generation of machine. And as soon as they start that, it means we really don't exactly know what the machines are doing in order to, quote unquote, improve our world. Then the risk becomes that if the machine makes a mistake about what will improve our world, we will have very little ability potentially to stop it. And so it seems to me that it's worth asking the question, what will be the signs that we're getting close to or passing the point of no return? Uh, and I'm sort of glad people are thinking about that. Doesn't mean doesn't call for much regulation right now, but it does call for taking the risk seriously, in my view. But I do tend to be of the view that if something bad can happen, eventually it will. And this strikes me as something bad that could happen. I think the call to action from this and other articles like it is to carefully implement, right? Like there is still that human control over how you test and implement machines. Maybe I have a little too much faith in the software development process and sandboxing and so on. But I think that there is an element of human control that hasn't quite gotten completely lost in the implementation phase yet when it comes to critical systems. So I would just foot stomp that point on critical infrastructure operators being very cautious. All right. We're not quite done because the U.S. has been asking the question, what can we do to control Chinese AI and restrict Chinese AI advancements so they don't end up Again, the, the, the worry here is some big unexpected move in sophistication and that it might happen in China and not in the U.S. and really surprise us with its capabilities in a military or other similar context. Jordan, I read this. And they, there, there's a lot of talk about how all the hand-wringing and deep thinking that's going on in the White House. I suspect this is just a standard fight between the NEC and the NSC in which the Economic Council and the Security Council have different priorities. The economic guys just want to have less regulation and more open investment, and the national security guys are more worried about how China will use this capability. And so they haven't come to agreement on what they ought to be doing. Yeah, so there were some so there were two kind of odd articles which I think are missing the forest for the trees when it comes to US China AI competition. So first, you had the White House briefing out a story that it was kind of like looking at Alibaba and Huawei who both have, you know, very large successful cloud businesses in China as well as, you know, 
data centers around the around the world. And then you had sort of Mark Warner as well as Ambassador Fick talking a little bit about how like China is leading the AI rules race and how you know they've they've gone further in regulating stuff like deep fakes and you know addressing copyright issues than either the US or, or China have. And I think both are sort of not quite getting at what is really going to potentially drive a real divergence in AI capabilities over, you know, a decade or multi-decade horizon. The kind of concern about Huawei and, and, and Alibaba Cloud strikes me as like a little odd because right now there are no rules around either, you know, the likes of Alibaba just buying the chips that are banned to export into China and setting them up in data centers in Singapore and then sort of like using them to service a domestic Chinese clients or for Chinese companies just to buy processing power from the likes of AWS and, and Google Cloud. So there's this weird loophole in apparently like the U.S. government being really scared of Chinese, you know, being scared enough of China having access to really advanced NVIDIA compute to stop them being allowed to import those chips, but being totally fine with, with having sort of like cross-border cloud offerings being acceptable to have Chinese customers. So I think until that sort of contradiction gets resolved one way or another, then sort of working around the edges about this and that thing with Huawei and Alibaba Cloud strikes me is a little surprising. And then on the sort of AI regulatory side, like what's, what's going to win the future for AI is not going to be, you know, your deepfake policy. It's going to be talent, it's going to be compute, and it's going to be sort of like algorithmic excellence. And lastly, like the ability for societies and economies at large to, to sort of accept the diffusion of these AI capabilities and turn that into productivity growth. And I have a really hard time imagining that like whatever the regulatory framework that happens this year, unless it's just so terrible that it cuts off all AI development, is going to matter one you know thousandth as much as sort of other, other aspects of, of what's going to make AI grow. Well, the EU is looking to do that. I'm convinced yeah. <laughs> that they've just about killed that. I describe that as e-euthanasia of their AI industry because it gives the people who care about AI in Europe the sense that, oh, there's all this regulation and it'll work to our benefit because we'll have all this stuff. It'll be really good for us and it'll have special exceptions for Europeans and stuff. So they hope that this regulatory regime will salvage them. It's just kind of lulling them to sleep because, you know, you don't compete with new regulatory regimes. We've had at least two Democratic senators say, oh, China's ahead of us, Europe's ahead of us in regulation, as though that actually made the difference in the market. It's just a pretty weird approach to this. It's, it's sort of like saying, wow, you know, China's ahead of us in adolescent suicide. We got to catch up somehow. Well, this, this, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'll embrace that analogy, Stuart, but I do want to, you know, your attention to a, a quote from Dr. Ruman Chowdhury, who was testifying before the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology last week, who said, you know, it's important to dispel the myth that governance stifles innovation. This is not true. In my years of delivering industry solutions and responsible AI, good governance practices have contributed to more innovative products. Like, okay, that may be fair, like backward looking, but is absolutely not the case going forward. And there is totally a universe in which lawmakers and regulators around the world get too over their heels and really do stifle innovation. So I, there I, is yeah. going to be a cost to whatever happens from a sort of legislative perspective. And, you know, it may end up being positive in the long run. But to think that between the four of us come up with hundreds of different examples of governance sort of getting in the way of technological progress. 
And that absolutely yeah. is a risk in this discussion here. And, and see, see my earlier points about regulator envy, right? They, uh, they look across the pond and see the Europeans doing it and think, gosh, like, why aren't we doing anything? At all the cocktail parties are talking about, you know, new EU regs or Chinese regs, the Silicon Valley, you know, folks aren't, aren't talking about what we're doing, that the politicians want to put themselves back in the catbird seat. Jordan, I thought you made some really interesting points a moment ago about the, the gap in the U.S. regulatory regime with respect to Alibaba and Huawei's cloud products. I suspect on the second of the two areas that you mentioned, their abilities to buy compute from U.S. cloud providers, that there probably actually is regulatory authority if an ingenious executive branch lawyer wanted to make use of it in the regulatory scheme that President Trump uh, established for information communication technology transactions. I don't think you know, cloud computing was what people were thinking of, but you know, that was preserved by President Biden. It was in, a, in an executive order, sort of refashioned and put in a little better process. But I think if you if you look long and hard at, at those transactions, you could probably block them through through that authority. Again, assuming you had the the right gumption in the executive branch. The the problem that you outline of of chips to Singapore is a different one. But yeah. Yeah, I think that would that would be an interesting approach if the ICTS program weren't the subject of amber alerts. I, it's just it's just gone. There's no sign that it's doing anything. And, yeah. and Commerce has had that for since the beginning of the Biden administration. They've been clearly in charge of this, and I'm just not seeing any sign that they're yeah. um, producing much. Maybe it's kind of their deregulatory impulses at war with the assignment that they got, probably because they weren't such so deregulatory under Trump. But it's it's really a, a missing in action program. Yeah, but I think the authority's there if uh, if someone wants to make use of it. It's still on the shelf. So I have a project for the Heritage Foundation. I think given this kind of 15 or 20 years of European regulation setting the stage and disadvantaging the U.S., I think it's time to ask the question, how can we lead by preventing other countries' stupid regulations from impacting our industry. I thought Japan actually might have taken a step in that direction when they said, as far as they were concerned, there were no copyright problems with reading and absorbing and then training AI models on copyrighted material, which means that if you want to train models on copyrighted material, Japan is the first place you want to go because you're not going to get sued for copyright violation, at least there. And there must be other ways in which regulation-resistant or regulation-sensible countries can say, you know, we're just not going to give effect to the effort of jurisdictions that have lots of regulatory clout and no industry to free ride on our industry. And trying to figure out the best way that the U.S. could protect its industry by blocking bad regulation would be a fun approach to the problem. I agree. Plenty to be done there. You could probably do some of it through trade negotiations, right? If we had a trade representative who hadn't for the last 20 years just not wanted to do anything in this area, the office is just really resistant to this, partly because they are so beholden to industry and partly because they don't know how they could put it into a trade agreement, which is what they're about. But I, I agree. We could be bringing trade cases, not that those cases go anywhere, but they would make us feel better and would give us more moral clout in resisting regulation, say in GDPR. Okay. Speaking of dumb regulation, Michael, it looks as though Meta has said to Canada, well, yes, you can make us pay for 
putting Canadian news links in our platform. But our solution to that is to not put Canadian news links in our platform. Google hasn't quite done that, probably because they need those links more than Meta does. But it looks as though Canada might have overplayed its hand. Yeah, this is the latest chapter in the attempts of news publishers to force mostly Google and Facebook to pay those publishers for users sharing links of news articles. As you mentioned, Stuart, you know, Meta announced that it's going to block the sharing of news links on Facebook and Instagram in Canada because of the, the legislation just enacted there last week. This looks like really a replay of the fight a couple of years ago between Facebook and Australia over a very similar issue. And Facebook, you know, similarly turned off news sharing for users in Australia, and the Australian government folded pretty quickly thereafter. They, you know, went into discussions and agreed to change their change their legislation. You know, I think the, the backdrop here is that news consumption through social media is declining, anyways. And the the irony is that if if Meta actually follows through on its threat, if they do block the news links for users in Canada, that that Canadian news publishers are going to receive even less digital advertising revenue because they'll receive less traffic from, from Facebook. So there's a little bit of a cutting off your nose despite your face dynamic here. And I, I think like what they're really trying to solve for is the diminishing revenue that the news publishers are receiving from advertising revenue, right? That's the underlying problem. And that problem, I, I think that the source of it is really in the digital ad monopoly, which is the subject of litigation in the U.S. and elsewhere, Right, where you see the DOJ having brought an ad tech lawsuit to try to break up Google's monopoly in this space. But if you're if you're trying to solve the problem of why aren't publishers getting enough revenue from digital advertising, I think that sharing the links is the wrong place to look. You have to go to you know what's actually going on to the in the online advertising ecosystem. Yeah, the outcome of this is going to be something that Canadians are just going to hate because they already hate it, which is that all the news about Canada will be filtered through a U.S. lens. Because, you know, the Wall Street Journal can still cover Canadian news. It's just that when the uh, Toronto papers or if the Montreal papers or CBC covers it, they won't get links distributed. And so a Canadian take on Canadian politics and Canadian policy will become even harder to find online. So it is a bad outcome. <laughs> well, don't, don't, don't worry. There have been other short-sighted regulation for that <laughs> legislative effort to force online platforms to mandate a certain percentage of Canadian content, just like they do in TV and radio. Yeah, fair uh, there's enough. A, there's a, sep- a separate legislative initiative that required Netflix and Amazon and to have you know a certain amount of Canadian and YouTube to have a certain percentage of Canadian content, whatever that means, in their online offerings. Yeah. All right. Well, so you you mentioned Australia. Australia does have a dumb regulatory regime that they're pushing, Michael, and they have told Elon Musk that they don't think much of his regulation of hate speech on Twitter. Where is that likely to end up? Yeah, so Australia's e-safety commissioner, I guess they've got one of those down there, sent a letter to Twitter demanding information on what Twitter is doing to stop online hate, saying that they've received an increase of complaints since Elon Musk took over the company last fall. No surprise that they've received an increase of complaints. You know, there have been plenty of complaints from U.S. users as well that are pretty vocal about it. And I think a lot of this is just activists who are you know unhappy with Elon Musk, don't like him personally, don't like the direction he's taking the company and you know are filing complaints about it. Or or maybe the real sin is is captured in a, a little bit of a throwaway line in, in the e safety commissioner's letter that Twitter laid off its public policy staff in Australia. So maybe maybe the real problem <laughs> is that they don't have anyone whining and dining the Australian regulators anymore. 
And that was the, that's the issue here. Well, that is, you know, a, they, that's a big regulatory gap. You yeah. know? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a gap. You know, they're, they're threatening to find Twitter if Twitter doesn't do more to stop what they deem to be online hate. I suspect that this is a lot of noise and fury, but it's unlikely to really go anywhere because if they, if they do attempt to find Twitter, number one, they're in for a legal fight on the you know, freedom of speech ramifications of what they're doing. And I suspect they probably don't want to press that fight. And number two, it, I'm not an Australian lawyer, but it appears that the regulatory authority is all centered around preventing cyber abuse, which requires some you know, sign of an intent of harm, of physically harming the person targeted for abuse. So I suspect they're going to have a bootstrapping issue that they're really trying to uh, you know, regulate in excess of their authority. But, you know, for sending a letter and generating some headlines and public pressure, that they're comfortable doing. It's just, you know, will they, will they be really be willing to press it in court if um, push comes to shove? Yeah, I must say, I do find it interesting that, because you know, the Europeans have also called out Twitter on hate speech, that Australia and the European Union might actually end up determining the things that Americans can't say on their own media because the the platforms are subject to Australian law and there's nothing, again, on the U.S. side. They're free to do whatever they want, but since they're not free to do it without being fined by Australia or by the European Union, at the end of the day, they do what uh, Europe and Australia want done in terms of the viewpoints that they want suppressed. And so we don't have a good response in the U.S. to saying, you know, not only is that a dumb regulation, it violates our notions of what free speech is. And it's not clear how the U.S. can assert its values, even though these are our companies that are enforcing other people's standards. Yeah, this is the same dynamic as California air emissions for, uh, for automobiles, but, you know, applied to online content moderation, right? California is a obviously an enormous market for, for cars and has the most stringent air emission standards. So therefore, every manufacturer makes their cars to the California standards, even when they don't intend to sell them in California. Same dynamic, right? The EU, Australia, they're hoping that, that their content moderation rules, you know, the, si- the size of their markets will, will allow them to impose their content moderation rules on the platforms writ large. And the question is whether the platforms want to go along with that or not. Well, so I, one fair question for Meta is you're willing to come up with a country-by-country country rule about where you allow links to a media. Why can't you have a country-by-country country rule that says, we don't dance to Europe's tune or to Australia's tune on hate speech or speech that's aimed at the U.S.? Instead, they've just very quietly surrendered their authority to, to other jurisdictions. They could say, fine, Australia has hate speech rules and we'll enforce them in Australia. They haven't haven't done that much. Yeah. And, you know, you can query whether that's because of a lack of desire to pick the fight, right? Because that does require a little bit of backbone when, when going against a regulator yep. to say, we're not going to impose your preferred approach on our platform at large. We're going to carve out an Australia-only version of Twitter with different rules. And presumably also that will uh, limit the ability of users in Australia to interact with users elsewhere. You know, it requires either that or, or, you know, the other theory is maybe this is what the content moderation folks at the big tech platforms actually want and just want to have a, an external regulator uh, appear to be forcing them to do it, right? Uh, yes. Well, you know, it wasn't me who forced these standards upon you. It was the EU or Australian regulators. So it's a way of obfuscating re- responsibility, perhaps. Yep, I miss the Saturday Night Live church lady. This is just so convenient. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Chessie, there's been a lot of talk about commercial data and a lot of effort to turn that into a, a major issue. We talked about that last week. This week, I thought I'd ask about the DELETE Act because the, at least there's some indication that the DELETE Act, which is a more modest effort to regulate commercial acquisition of private data, might be moving. What are the prospects for it? And what does it do? So this is essentially a bipartisan, truly bipartisan, to speak to the earlier streamer conversation, yeah. effort to force what Congress has identified as kind of these broad data brokers and sellers to delete individuals' private information upon request. So this is an interesting moment, in my opinion, for this kind of tech regulation around data privacy. And I think modest, as you said, is a good word for this because there's a neat kind of bucket that this fits into that's reminiscent of when the FCC rolled out that option for people to opt themselves out of receiving telemarketing calls and robocalls. So there is like a clear implementation framework here. I mean, there's legislation drafted. It was resuscitated from a 2022 version of the Delete Act with some feedback from the FTC added. So all in all, I think prospects are somewhat good, if I may be so bold, but I do see a couple of, once again, implementation challenges and just kind of a broader question that I have as the bill moves through. So there's two things here that I see as like a heavier lift for the Delete Act specifically. And they both have to do with essentially opting in. So one is these data brokers, right? And their legal affiliates, as the law describes them, have to actually register with the FTC as businesses that that do this kind of prohibited activity. So one, you have people, you know, companies having to self-identify in some ways, as well as identify all of the little branches that they might sell to or deal with to the FTC themselves. That's going to be, you know, a compliance issue or registration issue right from the bat. And then the other aspect of this is rather than being framed as any kind of right to privacy, consumers have to opt in. There's a, you know, ideally going to be this centralized form that people fill out and they say, hey, delete my private information in this one go within the next month or else, right? So anytime you have this kind of opt-out system with consumers, there's always going to be a burden on the consumer and potentially low rates of compliance if it's not marketed correctly or if it's not accessible to broad swaths of the general public that might be interested in, in availing themselves of it. And I, just to go back on the FCC robocall thing, I filled out that form and I still get like five robocalls a day. So unclear efficacy there. I hope this one can be a little better. Last point I just wanted to throw out there again, kind of going back to previous background in law enforcement, this new version, I believe, includes an exception now that the data brokers are able to retain the minimum amount of information required for them to comply with law enforcement subpoenas or court warrants. And depending on who you ask and what the crime somebody is being investigated for, that could basically be all the information that they have. So I, again, I, I wonder, I think the prospects of it moving through are good, but the, the reality might be a little more questionable than this kind of silver bullet one hit wonder they, they're making it out to be. Yeah. Just my, just one girl's opinion. <laughs> okay. This story is sort of fun uh, just because it's a, an evergreen story for the Cyberlaw Podcast, the European hypocrisy on human rights and privacy. Michael, the European Union has been campaigning aggressively and at 
to its credit, willing to actually regulate its own industry on the question of spyware. Uh, usually, they just want to regulate ours. But in this case, they have been trying to, to make spyware very hard to commercialize and hard to sell in Europe. And they've drafted legislation about use of spyware. And now it looks as though Brussels is in a fight with various national capitals over whether, for national security purposes, spyware can be put on the phones of journalists. I, I thought that was a really interesting question. And it looks to me as though they're fighting not over whether that's possible, but how easy it should be. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I, I look forward to your forthcoming casebook, European Privacy Hypocrisy. This can, <laughs> uh, this can get a chapter in it. So yeah, as, as you mentioned last fall, the European Council proposed the European Media Freedoms Act with some pretty you know, far-reaching protections for journalists and their families from government surveillance. Uh, this came after a, a series of scandals in European countries where you know, the security services were involved in surveilling either opposition parties um, in Spain or journalists in Hungary. You know, so on, on the heels of those of those spyware scandals, you know, they proposed this legislation. Now, various national governments, in particular, it appears the French, are uh, lobbying the European Council, and it appears that they have been successful to in amending that legislation to have a pretty a pretty significant exception for those those protections. Maybe it's a, an Airbus-sized loophole for the security services to be able to still surveil the journalists when they need to for national security reasons or for national sovereignty reasons. So will this stop the, the European preaching about cross-border data transfers to the U.S.? Probably not. But, you know, at least it is perhaps a, a rare example of the European intelligence services actually keeping their political counterparts in the loop about what it is they are doing so that the legislative efforts align with the actual practices. Yeah. I do think that one of the things that's going on here is is the national security authorities are just, they've had it up to here with Brussels and they're pushing back. But I think Brussels is, you know, has, is ending what has been a 70-year holiday from history in which they ha didn't have to think about national security because the U.S. would do it and and and, and they could second-guess us while we were doing it. And now they've got a war on their doorstep with somebody who's a perfectly plausible member of the European Union, and they are at risk of being struck. And so they kind of have to think more seriously about what it takes to protect your national security. So I'm kind of hoping that there'll be a reset in the relative power of the national security authorities, which have always been divided among the countries, the members, and the economic forces who have always been united in Brussels. And if that happens, maybe at some point they'll start to think about doing the value of some of the things the U.S. does. But we'll see. I, no, I, I agree. That would, that, would be, that would be a salutary uh, outcome. And it's actually no surprise that the French are the ones doing the charge on this. They've always had a, a, a greater bias for action uh, yes. in the security space than most of the other European countries. It makes sense. The other story that I, I think may relate to this a little, at least, is a BBC story saying, how come we hear about all of these Russian and Chinese cyber attack technologies, and we don't get anywhere near as many stories about the West's capabilities in detail? And they're picking in particular on an exploit that, that was widely attributed to NSA that compromised a whole lot of phones at Kaspersky, and which the Russian government was so exercised about that they told all of their officials to get rid of their Apple phones because this exploit 
It was a, a no-click exploit of Apple phones that was written up by Kaspersky. And the BBC is saying, how come we don't see more of that? I thought they, the answer was kind of obvious, but what, what do you think we should make of this story? <laughs> yeah, so the, the, because the Western intelligencies are better at their jobs. Is the, well, that's uh, that's, is that's the, part yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And plus, people are just less worried that they're going to be attacked by Western intelligence if they live in the West. You know, there really is a difference in the rules that those intelligence services follow than when compared to the Chinese or the Russians. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're, not, we're not engaged in the equivalent of like the colonial pipeline ransomware attack. So I, I think that is a big part of it. And, you know, it did appear to be a pretty clever exploit of those Kaspersky iPhones. So, you know, it goes back to, I think, you know, some of the earlier points about it really does matter when you have the concentration of hardware and, and software. It, uh, that is a significant strategic advantage. Yeah. I thought it was interesting also, first, Apple, notwithstanding that it's a U.S. company, immediately fixed the flaws that software had made possible. Yes. And, and it appeared it was only older older versions of uh, iOS that were exactly. in the first place. But, and yeah. I got the strong sense that whoever wrote this realized it was on its last legs because people were going to update or be updated in their software and the software, the, the attack would no longer work to the point where actually the exploit prevented the Apple phone from getting updates, which was never a long-term solution. So my sense was the reason they had infected so many phones in the Russian government in Kaspersky is they only had a few weeks to get whatever they were going to get. And so it was one of the rare circumstances of a Western exploit technology that was pretty indiscriminate in grabbing lots and lots of data without regard for whether it was going to get caught. Indiscriminate, but only within a, you know, With, a fairly discriminating universe, right? Yeah, that's uh, true. That's true. Yeah. Okay, well, let's do some quick hits and updates. We've talked a lot about the attorneys who let ChatGPT write their brief and it just made up the cases and when challenged to produced the cases, made up the text of the cases. Those guys are now in trouble. They've been fined some thousands of dollars by the court, forced to disclose to every jurist whose fake opinions they trafficked in that they did this wrong. So, And the court really said, as I had suspected, this does not look like good faith conduct, even after you were on the verge of getting caught. You were trying to avoid the consequences of what you'd done. And so they have paid a price. And the price and publicity, I'm sure, is even worse. Jesse, uh, Matt Olson has announced that uh, he's creating a new section that I think they call NatSec Cyber in the National Security Division. There's been a cyber crime division in criminal for years, well, generations. This is the first time that NSD has created a cyber section. That's right. And I think even more interestingly, in the announcement, he mentioned wanting to focus more on proactive disruption of cyber threats posed by nation state and state sponsored actors, which is a departure probably from some of the previous DOJ actions that we've seen, but aligns this new division more closely with the actions of CISA and FBI and the kind of charge given to them by the recently released National Cybersecurity Strategy. So this clearly is just an alignment and a unity of effort on DOJ's part and provides some justification for more proactive action on the cyber front. I'm with you on disruption. And I will say I, I had some role in getting the National Security Division created because of a 
report that I participated in. And this is just one more example of why that was a good idea, that NSD is aligned with our intelligence services in a way that the criminal division never will be. And the idea of using criminal authorities for disruption is going to be a harder sell at CRIM than it would be at NSD. So yeah, I think on the whole, Good news. The only thing that's puzzling about it, if you're not from the United States, is they're going to say, why are prosecutors doing this? Isn't this, isn't this a job for the military? Isn't this a job for the intelligence services? And the answer is both of those institutions in the U.S. are afraid of their lawyers. So you've got to get their lawyers on board in order to, to actually do anything really creative. Okay. So the next question is, can we borrow money from you? Because I see that Google is giving $20 million to cybersecurity clinics, which I think is what you're running. And UT Austin is getting written up as the centerpiece for some of the cybersecurity clinic movement. So is this all about you? Well, I, I won't take that much credit. I don't know about centerpiece, but yeah, coincidentally, probably the biggest development in the cybersecurity clinic space happened last week with the announcement of the cybersecurity clinic grant fund generously provided by Google. So for the unaware, perhaps cybersecurity clinics are very similar to clinics that operate at law schools around the country. We provide hands-on cybersecurity experience to undergraduate and graduate students by merit of having them deploy into their local communities and serve, sorry, do have a pet present who my views, you know, not reflective of hers per se. Yeah, she <laughs> wants to chime in on the story. She exactly, exactly. $20 million she, will buy a lot of dog treats. <laughs> These are clinics that deploy undergraduate and graduate students into their local communities and have them render cybersecurity services to under-resourced businesses, nonprofits, sometimes local city you know, governments that are under-resourced as well. So really exciting stuff for cybersecurity clinics here. We're a growing movement. As you mentioned, UT Austin's clinic got great coverage recently, but all of them are extremely meritorious with their models and deployment missions. And this fund just brings so much more exposure to a really critical movement in, in cybersecurity workforce development and I think local community infrastructure protection. So really exciting stuff. That's great. Okay. Well, congratulations to you and to Google for Thank this. You. It does sound like it will be a valuable initiative. And thanks to Jesse, to Michael, and to Jordan for joining us today. I have been saying for a while that we're looking for an intern who might want to take over sound and maybe other substantive production for the podcast. And I'm starting to get emails at cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. It took me a while to get back to that. I have started moving through the email emails you guys have sent me and starting to respond. So if you sent me a message, don't fear. I've got it and uh, you should be hearing from me shortly. And if you haven't done it, this is your chance, almost your last chance to express an interest. Alternatively, if you just want to send us an abusive email, you can use the same address. Uh, but if you're going to abuse us, do it in a review and give us five stars and then we'll read it on the air. Thanks to everybody in the audience and to our panelists. This has been episode 464 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Tough crowd.